There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. As I just mentioned, we're going to continue with a format I tested out last week. So if you listen to What Would John Eberhardt Do? You know what to expect in this one. But today it's What Would Steve Bartilla Do? We've got a very different perspective on hunting, a very different set of experiences, a different approach. Um, so it makes this an interesting, different way of looking at things than we have with John. Um, Steve hunts both public land and private managed land. He hunts uh, some spots that he's able to do a lot of things with. He hunts some spots where he can't do anything. Um, he, I, I think one of my favorite things about Steve is that he's very open to other ideas. He's very open to, Hey, I don't know everything. This is the way it works for me. It might not work for you. I always find that refreshing about him. Um, but overall, most importantly, the guy is a great deer hunter, a great communicator about what he's doing. And he talks about everything from how he would hunt, you know, with a family member on the same property who's doing crazy things. What would he do in that scenario? He answers questions about how he might, approach a situation where a doe comes into heat really early, let's say mid-October, what he would do in that scenario. We talk about how he might hunt in the rut when he's wondering if he should change stand locations or not, if he's going to do it, what time of day. Those are just a couple of the hypotheticals I throw out at him. Many, many others. This is a long conversation, but a good one. So I don't want to spend too much time beating around the bush. Let's just get right into it. I hope you enjoy this. I guess I should preface this though before I do that if you don't know who Steve Bartilla is I guess I'm just kind of assuming you do because he's been on the podcast multiple times I think three times in the past he's great he's a longtime outdoor writer for many of the different top deer hunting publications he's been on a number of tv shows you probably see him these days in a lot of things for deer and deer hunting magazine and their shows his uh, television show grown big he's all over the place um that's, I guess, all you need to know before we can get into it. Now, enjoy our conversation with Steve Bartilla. Take some notes. Think about how these scenarios might apply to your own hunting situation and enjoy. All right, folks, I'm excited to have back with us Steve Bartilla. Steve, thanks for coming back on the show. 
Hey, Mark, it's absolutely my pleasure and sincerely my honor to be able to do stuff like this. Well, hey, right back at you. I feel uh, pretty lucky to be able to do it, too, getting to chat with folks like you and pick your brain. Um, it's that time of year for a lot of folks. The ramp up into August is just a steadily growing day by day rise in anticipation for the hunting season. So I know a lot of people are excited to just get their mind deep into whitetail stuff. And you were one of the first people I thought of when I thought, okay, how do we ramp up into the last part of summer? You'd be a good place to start, Steve. So uh, pressure's on. We're expecting a lot. You got to help us scratch that whitetail itch. Can you can you do it? I'll do my best, man. I'll do my best. How uh, How is the uh, summer prep going for you so far this year? Really exceptional. Um, I'm working on two long-term large management projects that I've done now for years. And, wow, I, I honestly, I pinch myself every day. But things are going extremely well in those regards. And, frankly, even when they aren't, it's like you're getting paid to play outside. <laughs> it's like the worst day doing stuff like that. I mean, I know it's an overly used cliche in all sorts of professions, but my God, the worst day doing something like that is by far the best day I ever had working a real job over the course of my life. And I had some cool real jobs. I like how you don't call this a real job. I do the same thing with oh, mine. <laughs> it's Now, don't don't let my wife hear that. Yeah, exactly. But no, this, this isn't a real job. It never has been for me. Um, no, it's a fame. It is. It is great stuff. So you're working on these projects for other folks' properties. How are your prospects looking on any of the places that you have access to this year? Do you have uh, any uh, bucks particularly on the mind that are back and ready to go? I'll be, geez, I know this sounds cheesy, and I sure, I sure thought it when I read an article about this back when I was, I don't know, maybe 30 years old or so, about some old-timer talking about how, yeah, you know, the longer I do this stuff, the more enjoyment I get out of just watching other people enjoy <laughs> nature. And that's, God, I've turned into that old cheesy old man. <laughs> um, I, don't get me wrong, I, I've, this isn't going to sound politically correct, and I really don't care. I really enjoy killing deer. That's that obviously need to die. They all are being utilized. I'm not talking about going into going into low population areas and just stacking them up or anything foolish like that. I, as you know, most of my harvests for the last, geez. 10, 15 years has actually been on the deer management end of things, where I'm trying to balance the population, or or I'm trying to, by balance the population, I'm not talking buck-to-doe ratios, I'm talking about balance the population with the habitat, to what the habitat can support that type of stuff, and, and then to truly, truly try to drive yourself insane, and you have to be a bit of a masochist to do it, to try to actually manage wild free range animals, you know, um, <clears throat> that that stuff is actually more fun to me these days than anything else. I yeah, hey, it's hard to explain, but I've turned into I've turned into that cheesy old timer, my friend. <laughs> and I hate to tell you this, 
But someday, I bet you that's going to be you as well. <laughs> yeah, I pass no judgment on you because you're right. It probably will be me soon. <laughs> but so, yeah, there's a whole bunch of cool deer running around out there on the managed grounds. And what I do is I split my time between hunting. Well, honestly, I split my time between hunting utopia and hunting hell. <laughs> I spend half my time hunting those grounds, which really don't get much better than that. Um, and the other half on public land. And the thing that I've noticed this year, and it's actually, actually, I think, a golden ray of hope. There's more stuff going on in public land this year than there has been since I was a kid. Really? Yeah. So when, um, I think, when you say that, are you basing that off of trail camera pictures of really good bucks, or have you just been seeing... Uh, I'm, I'm talking us, and I think it's a great thing. Um, what, whatever you wanna, however you wanna look at whatever the heck's going on in this country these days, I'll tell you what: a lot of people are hitting the woods. Yeah. And holy man, did we ever need that? Because our numbers haven't been getting bigger. And that I thought. Is, I mean, I know that's not the topic of today's conversation by any stretch, but I thought that was a golden ray of hope. It's like, yeah, it sucks when you get to your public spot and you've noticed that there's people signed back way the heck back in here now. But at the same time, it's like, wow, cool. We're actually starting to remember that we're connected to nature and that we can do these types of things again. Very true. Very true. And there definitely is a resurgence of of interest in hunting those public places too. People are realizing that, you know, there is opportunity out there. You can get into some good hunting if you hunt smart. And uh, that's definitely kind of rekindled a lot of excitement in people, which is which is cool to see. Yeah. Well and for the past I mean, I probably shouldn't admit this because this doesn't make it sound as impressive when I've been dragging these bucks out of here, but for the past five, ten years really the amount of pressure on the public grounds that I've been on, and quite a bit of them, um, has been going nothing but down. So the deer quality on them generally has been going up. So in a weird way, the timing on this is kind of nice. You get a bunch of people that haven't been spending a lot of time in the woods, and they might actually have some success, and they may buy a license again next year. And for as much as we do not like seeing those boot tracks, in our in our public ground spot, right. if we're not seeing them, eventually we don't have public ground to hunt anymore because hunting's not legal. Yeah, yep. We need we need advocates and people that are part of the community, right? We need to keep growing the ranks. You got it, brother. Well, but with that, let's talk some real stuff. Yeah. Now. You mentioned you mentioned that you do hunt utopia and you hunt the public land. You've got this good mixture of these very different types of hunting. And that's kind of one of the things I want to talk about today because you have this experience managing and planting food plots and managing timber and, you know, hunting deer that you're able to watch year after year. But then you also have this experience going to public land, hiking in there, figuring it out without being able to ma manipulate anything. Um those are two very different types of scenarios. And the format for our conversation today, Steve, I thought is, is something I've just started testing out recently. It's, it's this idea I had to try to get a new level of insight 
from people that maybe we've talked to in the past that had a lot of great stuff to share, but we want to kind of scratch this deeper than the surface. And so what I want to do is present you with a bunch of different hunting scenarios. I'll sketch out a, a pretty detailed situation. And then what I'd be curious to hear from you is what you would do in this scenario, why you would do it, like what's your thought process, and then how you would actually you know go forward with it. So if you're willing to go into like Mark Kenyon's funhouse of crazy deer hunting scenarios, that's the game plan here. I think this will be an absolute blast, but I am going to preface everything that I say right up front that all anybody's going to hear is one person's opinion. There's infinite ways to skin these cats, and the best way to do it is the one that works for you. But these are just, but yeah, this sounds like a blast. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's what I love about you. You're always so clear about the fact that this is just, you know, your take. It's there's it's not black and white. There's lots of different ways to do it. I like that about you, Steve. So never change, okay? Never change. <laughs> Life has a way of keeping me humble. Yeah. <laughs> okay. every, every time I think I got this stuff really figured out, I get served a humongous slice of humble pie. Mm-hmm. Deer hunting has a way of doing that. As it should be. Yeah. But, but anyhow. So some of these are going to be more private land and management focused. Some of these are going to be hunting. Some of these are going to be public land hunting. And and also, if I ask a question that, you know, initially is about your private land stuff, but you have some thoughts, if this were to be on public land instead, feel free to pivot that way too. And uh, we'll just kind of see where things go. But here's here's scenario number one, Steve. Let's say you just picked up access to a lease, a small lease. Um, and for whatever reason, you can't hunt most of your other old spots. You can't hunt these managed properties that you have. This is going to be your, your main spot now. And you uh-huh. just got access to it on August 15th. And with other plans coming up, you only have two weekends to work on it. You've got two weekends to prep it. Um, you could do some minor improvements on it. The, the farmer who owns it says, Hey, you can do some food plots. You can do, you know, whatever you want to do, as long as you don't mess with my crops, that's all he really cares about. Just don't mess with my crops. So you've got two weekends to kind of do this last minute rush of work between August 15th and the end of the month. What would you prioritize on the property during those two short periods of time to work on it? Um, let me hear what's your, what are your thoughts there? You're going to hate my answer, and that's I'm going to prioritize learning what the heck the deer are doing on there. And that, and if it takes me that for, I may go ahead. I mean, if there's obviously I've never stepped foot on this fictitious ground, so there may be a meadow right in the middle of it that every one of these deer either pass next to or pass through in route to get to the farmer's grain. Or or alfalfa or whatever he whatever crop he's got planted or crops he's got planted out there. Okay. Um, if if I got low hanging fruit like that, I'm gonna pluck it. You know, and by that I mean, geez, I'll just go in there and spray it and throw some uh, <clears throat> throw some cereal rye down the same day I spray it. Wait for the weeds to fall over and pray for rain. And if I, hey, I'm not I'm not cash cropping here like farmer. All I'm trying to do is create enough food to get the deer to stop by here a little bit. And if that meadow is, as I said, set up like that, geez, I'm going to go ahead and put some licking branches around it too because those are easy, quick things to do. And by putting those licking branches and the food, what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to make a social hub slash staging plot where even if the food doesn't work out that great with all these licking branches, man, every one of these bucks wants to stop here at the local coffee shop before they head to work. 
Um, <clears throat> but mainly, what I'm going to try to do, unless there's some real low-hanging fruit like that, I'm going to spend the first year trying to figure out what the heck the deer do. The biggest mistake I think we make is we got two weekends. We got to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Well, no, you, you don't. You need to learn what's going on there before you can go ahead and set realistic goals on what I can achieve. And once I set realistic goals on what I can achieve, I can almost always find a path forward, um, a path to lead to those goals. And while you're following that path, always remain rigidly flexible because when things change, you want to change with them. You don't match what your goals are to the ground or I'm sorry, you don't force the ground to match your goals. What you do is, for me personally, I, I study what the deer are doing. What does the habitat got for me? What doesn't it have? How are they using the topography? How can I take advantage of all of these things? If I don't know what they're doing, it's like throwing junk at the wall and hoping it sticks. And some of it probably will, but I'm going to have an awful lot of stuff just slide off that wall. That's a great point. So, so what would you let that first weekend then, if you go into this first weekend knowing like, okay, most of this preseason work and even most of this hunting season is going to be about just learning. This is my first year. I need to learn that first weekend of presumably scouting. Could you walk me through, you know, what that scouting work would be? Would it simply be, I'm going to walk the whole thing? Would it be, I'm going to walk the edges and play some cameras? Is it going to be, you'll sit out the first night in glass and then the next day you'll try to walk? I'm just curious the specifics. How big this lease was? Let's, our fictitious let's, lease here? Let's call our fictitious lease 40 acres. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so it's big enough that I'm not probably not going to be able to set up one spot and watch the whole darn thing. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get my hands, I'm going to jump on Google Earth, and I'm going to bring up that property and get the aerial photography of it, and then I'm going to find a topo map of it as well. And the first thing I'm going to do is study the property itself, and I'm going to try to zoom out a little bit. Okay, What's this overall area like? 40 acres is not enough ground to truly you know, be raising deer on this 40 acres. You know, instead, what they're doing is they're utilizing, what you're hoping is they're utilizing this 40 acres as part of their greater uh, uh, home range. And specifically, you really hope it, Mr. Big's core area. That would be really nice. But um, I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to determine what, what this property has going forward already and how it fits into the overall area. You know, many times, uh, well, there was a, uh, geez, and this property was for lease for a while and would have been a glorious one to have. Um, Just a little 80-acre sliver. Doesn't look that impressive. You go out, you walk that 80 acres, and say, oh, man, there's some nice deer trails going through here, but it's really not overly impressive. And then you jump on Google Earth and you zoom out, and you see, oh, there's about 500 acres of timber to the south and about 1,000 acres of timber to the north, and every deer that goes through goes back and forth between those two chunks of timber. Hmm, they either have to cut across wide open farm fields or they go through your 80 acres. Wow. Oh man, that's a pretty darn special eighty. But you don't know until you zoom out. <laughs> you know, look, 
really study that area. Understand, really this comes from, as much as possible, become a student of white tails. When you find that sign, ask why. Why did that buck, why did that doe, why did that deer do this here? And the more you ask that, the more you can start coming up with answers. Now, I'm not I'm not sure not pretending you're right all the time, but I'm telling you what, I bet you in the right property with the right topography or cover, I, I bet you I can, I bet you I can hit 50% on where they're bedding without ever even stepping foot on there. And it's not because I'm some great deer whisperer by any stretch of the imagination. It's simply asking why over and over and over and over while you find this stuff. You find that buck bed on the off-season. Squat down in it and look around. Why is that buck bedding here of every place he could bed? You know, um, <clears throat> why is he actually traveling down the side of this point instead of right down the middle? I, the more you start asking, you see patterns. you see patterns pop out. And then, next thing you know, you can start picking them out on aerial photos. Aerial photos and topos are always my security blanket, my first step. Then after that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to come up with a checklist. These are the places that jumped out at me. This is where the creek runs through the property. Hmm, I know that creek is a potential water source, and any flowing water is a potential travel corridor, even when it's going through timber. Um... Okay, so I want to check out that creek. That meadow, oh man, that meadow sits great. You know, you got all that nasty cover to the north. This meadow's to the south, and 50 yards further south of that's the farmer's fields. Jeez, you think that's a natural staging area? It is to begin with, so I'm going to put it on steroids. Um, and the more of those types of things I can see before I ever step foot on the ground, particularly on the neighboring properties. Because that, when you're controlling eight, 40 acres, those neighboring properties are going to be a big impact on your hunting. Um, and so just initially I'm trying to get that flow. Then next, what I'm going to do is I'm, even that first year, I'm, I'm going to hunt it. Although I have went ahead and, the only lease I ever had, I set aside for a year just because I knew the quality of deer on there was not something that I personally was interested in. I needed It needed a year. But um, <clears throat> that one was an extremely easy place to figure out, and I had plenty of time to figure it out before season. Um, <clears throat> but I will go ahead in the scenario you're talking. I have no doubt I'm going to go ahead and set up a few stands. My primary mission, though, is going to be where can I set these stands so I can actually do a whole lot of observing, have a chance at shooting something without anything knowing I'm there. I'm not saying you're always able to pull all that off, but that is no doubt how I'm going to hunt at the first few sits. I'll go ahead and put trail cameras. I will have an idea of how I believe the deer are utilizing this ground, and then I'm going to try to pick low-impact spots that I can set trail cameras up in to validate it or to tell me I'm wrong, one of the two. Um, And just kind of generally take that approach. It's not, to me, this type of stuff, well, it used to be. 
uh, race to fill that buck tag. It's actually a race to figure out this ground and how the deer use it. Because once I got that down, I'm going to be able to utilize that year after year after year after year after year. I'm going to be able to do minor improvements that are fairly darn minor. But man, does it ever take that deer flow and put it on steroids in a good way. But all of that type of stuff, for me, it don't happen unless I learn that property first. You, you, when you talk about learning property, I'm sure part of that is trail cameras. And uh-huh. I'm curious, this is, I've got, I'm going to get myself tangled in circles here. But one of the other scenarios that I wanted to bring up is one that I'm going to layer on top of this one. Let's okay. say we've got this lease and here's the new scenario I'm going to throw at you. You want to learn. You want to figure out what deer are out here. You want to figure out what these deer are doing. So you want to run cameras to some degree. But this location, this state does not allow any baiting. No baiting, no minerals, no attractants, nothing like that. So you can't put a trophy rock. You can't put corn. All these things that make it much more easy to figure out what's out there. Um, We can't use it. What do you do in that scenario? Scenario I'm in in on one of the two managed properties. Mock scrapes are very nice tools for inventorying bucks on food sources. I don't care when it is. Just make that thing stick. Make that make that licking branch literally stick out like a turd in a punch bowl. Put it right smack dab in that buck's nose. Put it out in that summer food plot. And you know what? They're not going to work that anywhere near as much as they're going to work them in in October, but when you're able to create that social scrape like that, year-round, I don't care what term you want to use for it, what it, I look at it as a communication hub where they're, they're not actually not pawing the ground hardly at all, but they're working that licking branch. And what you'll notice over summer, the does end up working a licking branch for a heck of a lot more than the bucks do. Um, but... When you get that in the right spot, you're going to end up having just about every buck in that area stop off and visit once or twice a month just to keep up on everything else. Otherwise, think of it as think of it no different than bow hunting. You know, I mean, I, I, sure, there's some states that allow baiting and all that stuff, and I'm not trying to rip on baiters in any way, shape, or form, but most of us don't bait when we're hunting. But yet somehow we're able to figure out fairly decent where those mature bucks are going to be walking. Do with the trail camera. You do, I mean, just, your trail camera is essentially a tree stand with somebody sitting in it 24-7. Now, um, but the big, the two big things that I really focus on, well, three, obviously I want to get them in spots where I will get intel, but way too much. Way too much. We want to get intel on that bedding area that's 100 yards back in the woods. So we go 100 yards back in the woods and slap a camera on that bedding area when, huh, couldn't you get intel on that bedding area almost, almost as effectively simply by setting up on the trail that leads to the bedding area that dumps into that field? No, you're not getting the exact same quality of intel, but you're getting pretty darn good intel on what's going on in that bedding area because most of the deer you're seeing enter that field off of that trail 
either were bedding in there or stopped by and visited it before they came out. Really think about how can I get this intel while putting my cameras in lower impact locations. One of the biggest sins I think there is when it comes to using cameras is they're supposed to help us, not hurt us. Now, what a person can do, um, if you have some of the louder flash cams, is go ahead and set them up off the ground. Or you can even use them to your advantage. And that is, um, don't take what I'm saying wrong. I do not believe that most deer are afraid of a flash cam or even a, heck, even a camera that clicks. They'll end up getting used to it if it's on a mineral liquor or a small water hole or a corn pile or something like that. But now, let's say that, let's say that metal that we set up that staging plot in happens to be eh, 60 yards wide. I'm not taking a 60-yard poke with my bow at a deer. But, hmm, what if I place that flash camera on the opposite side of that meadow? It's nowhere near enough to actually scare that buck from not going in that meadow again. But eh, it tends to encourage a percentage of them to yeah, travel the other side a little bit more. And that's where my camera happens to be. That's about the only time. That's about the only scenario where I think it is acceptable for cameras to, I don't know, educate, for lack of a better term, deer. There's a situation like that. Otherwise, really think about where you're putting those cameras and think about how you're checking them, when you're checking them, all that good stuff, because, geez, way too often, trying to learn that ground, we end up exploding it by running our own cams. Yeah, like you said, it can sometimes be your worst enemy if you uh, go the wrong way with it. Mm-hmm. You talked about this little meadow that we're turning into a into a little staging plot of sorts. Let's let's keep going with this scenario a little bit further. I'm going to adjust it just a bit, though. I'm going to tell you now that most of your property is relatively open. There's not a lot of great cover. There's there's some, but uh, most of the really good bedding is on your neighbors. Most of the deer are bedding on your neighbors. And most of your farm is a couple little fingers and then this meadow and then the farmer's crops that you can't really do anything with. So you want to try to figure out some way to get that mature buck that's bedding on the neighbors to spend a little more daytime activity or a little bit more of their time in the day on your side. And that meadow maybe is the only area you really have to work with, let's say, hypothetically. Um, would you do anything different in that case? Would you not plant that into a staging plot or would you still do a plot, but would you do anything else to make it more enticing? Would you add cover? Would you throw a whole bunch of different things at it because that's the only thing you can improve? Let's say it's year two, maybe. So you've learned a few things. You now know that most of the bucks are betting on the neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. Um, can you give me a little bit of an idea there? So we got this little half acre meadow about the best thing we can hope for from a cover standpoint to get some does to bed in there. Um, the buck, Mr. Big, is bedded on the neighbors for a reason. They're either he's got a uh, <clears throat> he's got a great evergreen stand down in some lowland, um, and we're talking a northern property, or he, man, he's got that point out on the that ridge where you can see everything down below him. Whatever, for or there's an island on the middle of their swamp. 
you know, for whatever reason, he has got primo betting over there, and you can't touch that. Um, when you can't, the idea of trying to get him to bet over on your ground, I mean, there's a chance you're going to pull it off, but, man, are you ever – odds are really high you're going to work your tail off that – off on that and you are not going to accomplish it there is a reason mr big is betting where he is he is mr big he can go any dang place he wants out in the deer world and he can do any darn thing he wants within the deer world because he is the man okay um so you can rest assured there's a reason that he's actually betting where he in the various spots he does and those reasons are because for whatever reason for whatever reason, he believes that this, these are the safest places I have. Whereas your does and fawns and immature bucks place way more, <clears throat> comparatively, way more importance on being close to a food source. Mr. Big Scale swings hard to leave me alone in a place I feel safe. <clears throat> so... If I know he, and I'm sorry for going that deep in there, but I actually think that when it comes to management, I think that is one of the most critical, critical things to grasp. And that is you don't go ahead and try to force your ground and your deer to your goals. You listen to what they're telling you. Then you take what they're telling you that works for you and you try to put it on steroids. Um, <clears throat> so we can get the does to bed there, but really how much, if we're talking time wasting, how much time is that going to waste for Mr. Big just to check that little half acre thing? He's walking by it anyway. <clears throat> um, most likely to get back and forth between bedding and food. So, those licking branches sure are a nice thing there, aren't they? Ev, I mean, we've all watched Bucksworth work scrapes. It's not like they walk up to it and within two seconds they're on, they're they're gone. No, they generally waste anywhere from one to five minutes. And you know as well as I do, hunting so often is a game of minutes. If I can get that buck, if I can get that buck to come in one two minutes earlier, that's often all the difference I need. If the neighbor's sitting on the other side of the fence, if I can waste one or two minutes of that buck's time, you know what? The odds of him catching that hunter climbing down out of his tree stand instead of the last five minutes of light with him up in it are a lot bigger, or a lot better. Those going ahead and adorning that meadow with licking branches is, I'll tell you what, if, there's, if there are bigger time wasters for bucks than thickening up your woods, and offering a bunch of licking branches, I'm not sure what the heck they are. Can you, now, can you real quick, sorry to interrupt, but no. can you elaborate on the licking branches? So I understand if there's a bunch of trees already overhanging and you can just, you know, clear out a space underneath them so it becomes a natural mock scrape. But what if we don't have those natural trees? Would you propose, you know, pounding in a, a T-post or a big wooden post and attaching limbs or... Okay, yeah. Tell me more about that. What, what, whatever and anything that works for some guys, they swear up and down, right and left, about hanging hemp ropes. You know what? 
that didn't work that great for me, but if it works for you, for the love of pepperoni pizza, keep doing it. Now hang a bunch of hemp. Me personally, what I'm doing nine times out of ten is either bending a branch down, nailing one to a tree, wiring it to a tree, or uh, not. I actually do not work with these gentlemen in any way, shape, or form, but there's this product out there called Scrape Stick. They went ahead and sent me a couple last year to check out. They're just a bracket that you, uh, you know, screw or strap to a tree and slap a slap a branch in it. I've used a couple of those last year. I've ran wires from tree to tree about <clears throat> eight feet off the ground and hung branches from them. It doesn't matter how you skin this cat. The big thing is get that branch right in that buck's nose. The other, and I guarantee that you've got all sorts of people out there right now, because this is the question I get by far the most whenever I talk, what type of branch should I use? I do not care what branch you use. It doesn't. I have seen bucks literally trash, trash hawthorn branches as licking branches with their three-inch thorns all over the darn things. When you put that licking branch in the right spot, it almost does not matter what type of branch you're using. Personally, I tend to stick to uh, hardwoods just because I don't want to replace them. Um, <clears throat> and the other thing when it comes to mock scrapes is I, I suggest first year, don't even use scent. Scent is if you really want to learn how to make mock scrapes, Get out there the first year and just play around with licking branches. Once you get that down, once you get that down, oh, man, mock scrapes are easy. Because the scent does nothing more than, yeah, buys me about, fi uh, about 5, 10, 15% extra activity at these locations. But if I start by using scent, I'm going to generally get better results, and that sounds great. But no, I want I want to get I want to get my results initially one hundred percent. I'm saying when I'm learning, you know, um, <clears throat> when I'm first learning how to make mock scrape sing, focus on the licking branch, forget everything else, because once you got that down, oh geez, <laughs> now now you can start playing with scents and that type of stuff, and you can put your results on steroids. But you learn how to make those bucks dance with nothing but a licking branch, and the rest comes super, super easy. And what you will find is the whole key is to put that thing right in front of their nose in an area with relatively open ground cover where deer concentrate. You do that, I honestly think it's almost as simple as the deer can't help, but it's almost like a reflex. They can't help but work that scrape. Um, <clears throat> I'll probably go ahead and slap, so I will, on a half acre meadow in that type of scenario you described, I'm going to have at least a dozen. At least a dozen prime licking wow. branches around that thing, because I want this to turn into a, just a scraping frenzy. Now, I personally am going to go ahead and slap uh, Magnum Scrape Dripper and either active scrape or golden scrape or hot scrape in that scrape dripper. But one of the things you learn when you're doing this stuff is about half the bucks 
love tearing into the mock scrape you 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 made? About the other half, they just get really mad and they want to make one right next to you. So when you're making these mock scrapes, always, always, always make sure that you don't make one, minimum of two. Okay, and you're going to see your activity go up quite a bit right there. Okay, so now I've got these at least dozen mock, uh, <clears throat> dozen licking branches on this half acre opening. I'll go ahead and bury a little water bucket, give them one more reason to come there. Um, if it's a half acre, I can't really go too nuts on trees, but I'll probably, I'll probably slap in, a, <clears throat> slap in, uh, assuming. I feel good about this being a long-term lease. I mean, if this is going to be a lease that I'm not sure I'm going to have five years from now, I'm not doing this. But if I am confident it's going to be long-term, I will certainly go ahead and slap in a handful of mass trees in that opening to go ahead and complement the cereal rye that I'll be planting until the soil is in good health, and once the soil is in good health, I'll go ahead and just top seed clover into there, because quite honestly, if you only have a half-acre food plot, clover's tough to beat um, <clears throat> for most places in this world. Uh, if he'll let me do some stuff in the timber, without a doubt, I will edge feather that... Uh, um, <clears throat> that food plot, and by edge feather, I mean I will either hinge cut a band of about five-yard wide band around the food plot on the low timber value, smaller trees. Um, there's oftentimes where you're in a mature woods, though, and you don't have smaller, low timber value trees. If I can, I'm going to Try if that's the case, I'm going to try to convince him to let me do a little bit of logging for him. Maybe sell some, uh, sell some because one of the biggest things I want to do is I want to try to thicken up that woods and I want to thicken up around the edge of that plot so the deer that are walking through the woods 50 yards away can't see into the plot. Nope, there's nothing of interest there. I'm just going to keep going to the field. Um, <clears throat> then also, you mentioned that the bucks are betting on the neighbors. That means they're jumping the fence somewhere. I'm going to find out where they're jumping the fence. And I'm going to try to figure out if I can get to that spot without any, get to that spot, hunt it, and get out without anything knowing I'm there. Because really, if I can find that spot, what I'm really going to be doing is hunting that. And assuming I can get away with it. Now, um, that, that it's, I can get in, I can hunt it, I can get out way more often than not without the deer knowing I'm doing it. And I'll probably set up stands, if there's one spot, almost certainly will set up stands on both sides of that crossing if, if I can make safe wins on both sides. Because really, that's where I'm planning on killing that buck. I'll set up about 50 yards off that fence line, wait for him to jump the fence to head on down to that stuff, and that's where I'm going to shoot him. Sounds like a pretty good plan. Yeah, it's, it's a plan. <laughs> it is a plan. <laughs> oh, just because just because it sounds great. Don't I mean I do want to preface something. When people talk like this, it always sounds great. It does. It doesn't always work out that darn easy, though. And you know that as well as I do. Mm -hmm. It's just that 
seems like too few people ever bother pointing that part out. Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a, it's an important point. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash eater and use promo code MEATEATER. That's promo code MEATEATER at urgentcarekit.com slash eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Let's, let's talk a little more on the hunting side and let's shift from a situation where you've got a small lease, you've got control of it to now let's say you've gotten permission on a property and it is a great property. It's small, but it's great. It's, it's kind of like that magical 80 you described where it's between two huge chunks of timber. Um, you know, from maybe, you know, some people that hunt neighboring properties, or you just know through the grapevine that this is a an exceptional property, lots of really good, big, mature bucks come off of this, this little area here, but a family member owns the property. So you've got this family member, they own the farm, they've given you permission, but for lack of a better, better term, they hunt it like a knucklehead. They hunt, they don't think about wind. They do a lot of silly things. They go in there and push things around and they just, they do things exact opposite of the way you would want to. So here's the question. Here's the scenario. Would you just avoid hunting it altogether because you know that your knucklehead cousin or uncle or whatever is going to blow it up and just make it a pain in the butt? Or do you say to yourself, 
There's so much potential here. I know there's great hunting to be had. I got to figure out some way to change what he does. Would you try to speak the, would you try to change his ways? Would you try to give him some advice on how to do it better? Or finally, would you just let him do his thing and you would use his mistakes to your advantage and find a way to use his knuckleheaded moves to work in your favor? Which of those three options would you choose and, and why? Um, I'd probably go with uh, hybrid and make it option four, if you don't mind. That's fine. <laughs> and, that is, um, and that is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hunt it. Will I talk to him? Oh, of course. But at the same time, here's something I've learned long, long. I, I used to consult for outfitters, and it used to drive me absolutely nuts how oh, so darn many of these hunters, there they are before they go out in the morning wearing their scent lock suits in the kitchen while the guy's fr- frying bacon, eggs, and hash browns. And that used to just, what are you guys, you guys Oh, that would drive me nuts. You've worked so hard to try to get this set up so right. And now the outfitter's sending some guy that absolutely reeks like the kitchen out of it. But wait a minute. That's their hunt, not yours. And this stuff's supposed to be fun. And if that's what's fun for those guys, if if my cousin's brother's uncle's sister is really in to doing what he's doing, she's doing out there, and they're having a blast, you know what, I'm sure not going to, I'm sure not going to push hard. If they want, if I will gladly, gladly try to help, heck, virtually any hunter in this world, you know, that genuinely wants, but I'm I'm not going to, I'm not going to shove it down his or her throat. What I will do, though, is I'm going to treat this just like, geez, as I mentioned, I consulted for a whole bunch of outfitters. Now, I was lucky I consulted for, the, generally speaking, the really good ones. But still, virtually every outfitter, there's exceptions. But most outfitters these days have to follow the same script because lease prices are so high and blah, 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 blah. Profits just keep going down. They just slap these people in the same stance day after day after day after day after day. And guess what? Eventually, that doe jumps the fence. And something's behind it. And that something that's behind it is pretty darn big, oftentimes. Um, that's really, most outfitters I know these days, that's how they stay in business. It's just simply by, by put, putting in the time hunters and these stands and eventually if that area is good enough that doe is going to jump that fence and oh yeah Mr. Big he knows he knows that the side of the fence ain't fun <laughs> and ain't a place that he should be but oh she smells way too pretty not to follow her if if, the, if that area is that good and I don't have a spot that is as good of quality of bucks for that area, oh, I'm hunting it. I'm going to hunt it, and I'm going to put in a whole bunch of time because I don't care how well you manage a property. I don't care how poorly you manage it. If Mr. Big ain't there, you ain't shooting him. And Mr. Big is in that area. And for as much credit as we do give Mr. Big for being smart, and he's no fool, generally speaking, 
they can act real stupid sometimes. And when he does, I want to be up in that tree to meet him. So are you are you gonna wait then for the rut, or would you would you would you oh, would you look at the rest of the year as kind of a waste of time and just focus on the rut time period? I'm going to at all times. I'm going to listen to what the deer are telling me, and that is if I got some trail cameras out there, it's a week before season, and geez, this buck I've got him. I've got a buck a week before season all over these cameras. Am I going to be out there opening day? Darn right I am. If instead. All I'm getting, I'm getting great buck pictures. Man, all sorts of great buck pictures, and they're all at, eh, 11 o'clock to 4 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, I'm probably probably going to find someplace else to hunt until the rut, unless we get a cold snap, and all of a sudden he starts cooperating. I mean, always, always, always try to remain rigidly flexible in everything. I go in with a plan for darn near everything on how I'm going to attack this. But man, flexibility is my best friend. When I get new data, I'm going to incorporate that data into my equation and I'm going to see if it gives me a different answer. And if it gives me a different answer, I'm taking a different road. Makes sense. You mentioned mentioned, uh, a scenario that I actually wanted to bring up next, which is getting pictures of a mature buck leading an opening day. So let's say you've... I'm sorry, repeat that part. Getting pictures of an opening buck? Getting pictures of a mature buck leading up to opening day of the season. Okay, yep. So let's say you're you're getting daylight pics of the top buck you're after over and over and over leading up to opening day. Multiple pics during that week leading up to it. It looks really great, but... When you look at the weather forecast for the first three days of the season, it's crud. Like, it's hot. The wind is very subpar for the spots you would want to go to try to kill him. Um, But at the same time, you know that everyone's starting to hunt, right? Hunting pressure is going to ramp up significantly. Maybe this is a property that other people hunt too. So you know that, hey, these other guys or my, my, my cousin might start hunting. So you know you've got to balance like the the change in deer behavior that's going to happen with hunting pressure versus the benefit of of hunting early that first night, but with poor conditions. What would you do? Would you still hunt opening night even with those poor conditions because he was moving daylight, he might change that after the day or two of hunting, or do you wait until you've got the right conditions because you just you do not want to go in there with things wrong? Well, how would you think through that and, and what would you do? Okay, the, the first thing I would do is probably have four times as many stands as anybody's thinking right now. Um, just because my, my philosophy on this, when it comes to private grounds, my philosophy is I, want, I do not want to be messing around in that timber. If I'm doing it on a field edge, no worries. But I am not messing around in that timber for anywhere from two weeks on through season unless I absolutely positively have to. And if, if it involves a tree stand, that means I didn't do my job either for myself or my client. One of the two, um, you go ahead and no matter how many stands you make sure that you have every decent spot 
sincerely decent spot. I'm not talking about, eh, it's okay, you could kill a deer here. But every decent, truly decent to good spot on that property, you should have set up. And if, it's, if it is a really good spot, you should have it set up with multiple wind directions, if possible. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it is, it, a lot of people look at that as a pain, particularly when, honestly, um, no, well, let's stick to just myself. I hunt about eh, 25 to 30%, I'd bet, of the stands that I prep each year for myself. That's it. And a lot of people look at the extra stand where, oh, man, you're work. No, no, please, please work me. <laughs> I mean, that just means I got a bunch of good spots to set up. And the advantages, the advantages of being able on November, uh, forget about that, December 28th, all of a sudden this buck showed up from nowhere. And now he's going ahead and he's betting on that knee just barely over that neighbor's line. So I can't set up on that fence crossing we were talking about before. You know, but, oh, geez, I, I, if I had one in this pinch down here, that would be perfect. Well, if I don't have one there already, that's my own dang fault. And the reason that I have one there is, yeah, I haven't said it one time this entire season. But you know what? If that buck does show up on the 28th. All I got to do is walk into the woods and climb up that stand, and he has no clue I'm there. The advantages of that are huge. Me personally, I'm going to go nuts, odor control, and I'm going to hunt that buck. But that's also because I believe that I can pull it off. If I didn't, with an iffy wind, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'll wait until I get a good wind. Because okay. that... If you don't, and I hesitate, in the last five, ten years, I hardly even talk about this anymore because I think think way too many people either 100% dismiss it out of hand or believe it, but yet don't take seriously how much effort it is to pull it off when it comes, I can defeat a white tail sense of smell. I have, up until late season, I have no doubt whatsoever in my mind. But I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of work. This is not something you do in a half hour a week. You're spending 45 minutes. I spend 45 minutes every time before I go out prepping just to be able to do that. Is there anything that you're doing that's above and beyond the normal? I am gargling with the most disgusting tasting stuff you've ever put in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a vanishing hunter and you have to find it on the internet. Because they don't even sell it in stores anymore. Um, otherwise, it's not really, it's not really any one thing. It is being unbelievably thorough and meticulous. If you're bringing it out in the woods with you, it's got to be treated. Period. End of story. You know that includes the glasses that are on my head as we speak. Now this year, I finally got smart because I had to buy new glasses and. Actually, that's a weird, stupid story. My wife accidentally bought me uh, sunglasses online <laughs> rather than regular ones. So I'm like, hey, you know what? I could actually use a couple extra pairs of, sun- of regular glasses. I'm gonna. So this year, I actually bought a pair of glasses that I use for nothing but hunting. 
And I know that sounds so ridiculously overkill, but absolutely everything you bring out in the woods with you without fail must be treated. About eight years ago, I started getting winded. I couldn't figure out what the heck was going on. I knew it was something. I went ahead, I got some moisture in my bow case, and my bow case got a little funky smelling. That's all it took. And I was even spraying down my bow every time, but obviously not getting every square inch of it. That's all it took to get winded. I went ahead and addressed that situation. Oh, man, we're back in the game, and we were surrounded by deer again last night without getting But you have to be unbelievably meticulous. Your boots stink like heck. you got to wash them out. <laughs> now, that grunt tube that you're blowing into all season long has so darn much bacteria in it, it's not even funny. Those optics. If you don't need to bring it in the woods with you, don't. If I have to go back to the truck to get my gutting gloves, a knife, and a tow rope, it's been a really good day. That's a good point. <laughs> That's a good problem to have. Yeah, exactly. Let's move forward into the month of October. I, but one, one real quick thing, though. Yeah. And that the biggest place I see people falling down of all places is they go ahead and they buy all this scent-free stuff and they take that shower and they dry off with that towel that was treated with a fabric softener and you're wiping perfume all over your darn body. Your toiletries need to be treated every bit as seriously as your hunting stuff. And then if you got to drive to where you're going, do not wear your hunting stuff in the vehicle. Wear treated clothing 100% just to get to work to where you're going and change there. All right, now I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> I hear you. I, I, I try to do all that as best as I possibly can. And like you said, it's, it's a chore. It's not easy, oh, it but it, it's, it's those little details that can make all the difference. And as I said, for, for a lot of people out there, don't do it if it's not fun, please. For me personally, if I don't do this, it literally drives me nuts every single time the word switches. Yeah. It just drives me insane. But anyway. Anyway, I know that feeling. When that wind switches and you're panicking, that's no fun. <laughs> um, let's push into mid-October. A lot of people... Not everyone, but a lot of people are quite hesitant about hunting during mid-October. There's the, you know, the, there's all the talk of the October lull. Some people won't hunt mornings throughout most of October until later in the month because of all these things. So I want to throw a scenario at you and see how you would approach it in that time period. It's mid-October. A big cold front is hitting. So you've got that blessed cold front coming in it's going to drop down from maybe it's been very warm let's see in the 70s it's going to drop down to lows in the 20s and maybe even the first snow of the year i mean exceptional you don't have much time available to hunt though because of i don't know you've got to work a regular day job or family stuff going on that's going to keep you from being able to hunt the ideal time period so you've got two options you can hunt the very first morning so you'd have to hunt on October morning, but it's the very first morning after that cold front hits. Or you could wait two days and hunt in the evening. Would you go right away and hunt the morning? Or would you avoid the mornings and hunt later after the cold front and, and get that evening? I cannot do both. You can't do both. Because I've got a real life and I can pull off one kitchen path. Exactly. 
Um, and, and one additional thing. Pick pick which date or which of those options you'd like to hunt, and then I'd like to hear your ideal hypothetical stand you would hunt for that scenario. Yeah, I would pick the morning and I'd hunt a doe bedding area. Why? Because we confuse buck rutting behavior with the rut all the time. And they're two completely different animals. I don't care about the actual breeding phase. All I care about is rutting buck activity. That Their testosterone levels have been... I'm assuming we're talking the Midwest someplace. Yeah. Midwest or points north. Okay. Um, their testosterone level has been building now for a couple months. Okay. It, it's nowhere near peaking yet, but it's starting to get it's starting to get itchy time. Okay. Now that cold front hits. That cold I mean, I will be honest with you, you're taking it colder than if it's seventy, 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 seventy for the past ten days, gimme fifty. And I'm treating it the exact same and I'm actually more optimistic um when you have a 50 degree temp drop that can that that's intense and when you have stuff that intense every now and then what i think i'm so smart and i know it turns out to be the exact opposite um but you get in that oh about 20 degree drop and that is that's something special and i don't care if it's going from 90 to 70 or 70 to 50 or 50 to 30 if you had four or five plus days in a row of those high temps and boom, the bottom falls out by 10, 15, 20, 30 degrees, you get your tail out in the woods. Because those bucks, if it's mid-October, I guarantee you that they are, the majority of them are acting just like it's November 5th. And you, you think that's just simply because they've been waiting, the anticipation has been building, and that that weather cue gets them over the hump that they need to at least start checking them out. And, and at the same time, there's, I can all but promise you, there's been a doe or two bred already around there. And they're not stupid. They probably were the ones bred that did the breeding. We try so hard, and especially with the way our weather patterns are getting just stupidly whacked out. That is messing, I'm telling you, sometime we can have a long, long, long discussion that would bore your audience to tears about, uh, about how this stuff has absolutely positively messed up whitetail patterns, too. I mean, it's, geez, I'm watching, I'm watching not last January, but the January before, for the first time in my life, I'm watching a mature doe being mounted in January. And last year, I'm watching on October 1st, I'm watching a deer, a doe stand to get bred. It is so all over the map these days, it ain't even funny. But even before now, more breeding occurs well before and well after the rut than we give it credit for. Okay. The, the peak rut, and it gets tighter the further north you get. It gets sloppier the further south you get because Mother Nature is Mother Nature is in charge of enforcing positive and negative reinforcement. And the further north you get, Mother Nature gets really mean. Um, but uh, there are all, jeez, I remember all the way back when I was in college, 
uh, working with an outfitter and him showing me, uh, what was it, high eight footage at the time of a mature buck mounting a mature doe in mid-September. More breeding occurs before the rut than we and after the rut than we give it credit for. It's just that the majority of breeding occurs during this window. So I believe Mr. Big already has had at least a smell of this stuff. His testosterone is building. He's been around the block more than once. He understands that some does are going to come in early. Some, most of them are going to come in on time. Some of them are going to come in a little bit late. And, oh, then we got the doe fawns coming. None of this is new to him. Okay, So when that temp drop occurs with all that other stuff going on, I... I it seems as if, as I said, I can't talk to deer, but it sure seems as if he can't help himself. It's just too darn much. <laughs> Got to get after it. Yep. Well, in but that, then, as soon as, as soon as the temps start climbing again, oh, that's done. Yeah. What about this? What about, because what you've described is something that I think people have seen in the past, where a doe comes in early, and there's this moment of chaos around that doe. But then inevitably that doe is going to, you know, be out of heat and then it's going to be back into this waiting period for the rest of the deer to come in. So what if you see this moment of excitement in early to mid-October where a doe comes in early, you can tell that doe must be hot because there's bucks chasing her. It seems like all of a sudden the rut is hit, but it's October 8th or 9th or something like that. And you know it couldn't possibly be the peak of the rut, obviously. So I would imagine... In that scenario, when you see that happening, you say, okay, I got to hunt right now because there's, there's something special happening right now. But how long would you imagine that lasting? Would you keep hunting for two, three days as if it's this rut activity? Or would you stop after the first day or would you hunt for, what do you, what's that time frame? I give it about two days, generally speaking. For, for if, I'm, if I'm hunting, right here, I'm hunting some public ground. And I'm watching a four-and-a-half-year-old, and, oh, man, if you're watching a four-and-a-half-year-old on Wisconsin public ground, you're doing something right. I'm watching a four-and-a-half-year-old chasing around this doe. And if that four-and-a-half-year-old is chasing, him around, chasing that doe around, I can all but promise you there's going to be others chasing him around, too. There's going to be that one three-and-a-half-year-old in the entire county that happens to live on this ground as well, and a couple two-and-a-half-year-olds and a handful of one-and-a-half-year-olds, and it's going to be a sh- it's going to be fun to watch because okay? she's the only the only show in town, and man, does she smell pretty, and that odor is wafting across that land. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to hunt it probably like well, I will go in there back to that public ground and I'm going to hunt that just like it was the rut for in that specific area as close to that zone as I've been seeing this if there's a bedding area right around there you can bet I'm going to hunt that tomorrow okay um because say I I think this is just 100% think but my experiences do tend to play this out when that occurs you got about two days of excitement before things calm back down to normal again, mm-hmm. just because of uh, just because of the snowball effect that that doe running around out there created, because now that that likely that four and a half year old buck 
more often than not, ended up with her. But that three-and-a-half-year-old is still running around out there. And I'm telling you what, on public ground, I will shoot that three-and-a-half-year-old every day of the week and say, thank you, can I please have a no? <laughs> yep. That's a good buck. Yep. What, what about this? What if all this, you know, we're talking a lot about October. I, I got to imagine from past conversations and things I've read and, and from a lot of kind of common um, – the, a common approach to deer hunting is be careful in October, hunt when you can, hunt smart, but be careful not to mess up your spots before November, right? Because that's when you're going to get the most activity, the most opportunities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What if I told you that November is off limits? You can no longer hunt in November. You can hunt October, do whatever you want, but November it's off limits. Can't do anything. How would you hunt differently in October if that was the case? Not that much differently, because quite frankly, um, quite frankly, I think that hunting the same stands in but the stands that are hottest in November generally aren't hottest in October. You know, that's one thing that the I'll tell you what one of the most humbling yet beneficial learning experiences of my entire life was those years consulting for outfitters. You want to put your learning curve on steroids? Have, oh, depending on how many outfitters I was working with per year, anywhere from 75 to 250 people telling you what you did wrong. <laughs> I'll, I mean, you, you better have thick skin. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, yeah, some of them didn't have a clue what they were talking about, but a lot of them did. And what that actually taught me is that guy who comes, or girl, who goes ahead and works a real job and scrimps and saves all dang year or multiple years in many cases to go on this hunt of a lifetime, he doesn't give a darn that it's October 14th and that it's 80 degrees and that the deer aren't moving. All he cares about is this is my dream hunt. So you got to figure out a way to put that guy on a deer or you're not doing your job. Um, <clears throat> what that really ultimately taught me is honestly, generally, there, there are a few rare exceptions, but generally speaking, the stands I want to hunt in November are not the stands I want to hunt even on a Halloween. Um, so generally speaking, no, I'm not going to go ahead and alter, alter my general style about the only thing I would alter though is that uh, that um, scrape that's on the downwind side of that doe bedding area I'm going to hunt it a little bit more aggressively I mean I'm going to hunt it anyway either way but I'm going to hunt it probably a little bit more aggressively than I would otherwise because otherwise I'm going in there thinking yep I want every time I go into a stand I'm for hunting a buck, there's all sorts of stands I crawl up into just for fun. But when I'm going into what I consider a buck stand, I'm not going into it unless I believe that I have a legitimate chance of filling my tag at this spot today. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but I am going to be a little bit more aggressive if I don't get to hunt October or I'm sorry, November, just because what I do view it as is, Okay, things, my, as I'm sure this is why you asked me, you know, as well as I do, my general approach to season 
is to start very low impact and slowly ramp my impact levels up. Mm -hmm. Because Mr. Big will tolerate a heck of a lot more guff from me on November 10th than he ever would on October 1st or December 1st. Um, That is the one part that I would alter is I probably would, well, I know probably about it, I would be a little bit more aggressive in how often I'm hunting some of these higher-impact stands, but otherwise my approach really wouldn't change. Let's look at another pivot off of that a little bit. Let's say you can still hunt November now. You can hunt October, you can hunt November, but you've got a world-class buck that you're hunting. World-class like the biggest buck you've ever had a chance at. It's, you know, 200 some inch, seven year old buck. You've been watching him for years. Um, he's, he's become this object of obsession, but you have a bunch of neighbors now that know about him too. And you're on a small property, let's say 80 acres and your neighbors all know about this deer and they are very good hunters now too. They've got it. They're, they're pretty dialed in. Um, and let me, let me adjust a little bit in past years. There hadn't been these great hunters. Now you've got all of a sudden, for whatever freak scenario, all these really good hunters are now surrounding you. So you have a lot of high-quality competition for this world-class deer. Would that change your typical your typical ramp-up? You would start careful. You would ramp up towards November. Or would you say, eesh, there's all these really good hunters. If I don't kill them early, inevitably one of them will. So I'm going to take aggressive stabs earlier in October because if I don't get it now, it's not going to happen at all. What would your thought process be with that kind of scenario? Well, shave 15 inches off the rack a year off of his age and go ahead and make the property considerably bigger. And I was in that exact scenario okay. a couple of years back. Um, I, I approached it as I, I hunted him like I was the only person in this world hunting him. Because I can control what I can control, but I can't control what they do. I'm not saying that this is right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just saying this is how I thought it through. Um, I went ahead and I started hunting him on the very... Now, I was lucky in that... And and this is going to play a role in this, okay? In this case, his core area was smack dab. One of his primary core areas was smack dab in the center of the property that I'm managing. Okay? I know that's his home base. The last thing in the world in that situation I'm going to do is boot his butt out of his own home base and onto the neighbors. Okay. So I started out very, very, very low impact nibbling away at him. And it wasn't until, geez, it wasn't until I got real aggressive on, I think it was November 3rd or 4th, maybe the 5th. Where I actually, I actually went. I, I this one, I knew, I believed, I knew where he was betting. Okay, and there happens to be a <clears throat> uh, bunch of doe betting just on, just to the south of where he's betting. He's betting out on these points. Then there's this flat that's just prime doe betting. Okay, I went on November third or fourth, fifth, right around there, on a very windy wet day i went in and pulled an all-dayer for him in there and actually he busted me cold Um, 
Yeah, I was looking one way with the binox, watching a watching a young buck chasing a doe around, and I hear a twig snap, and I slowly turn my. I mean, but it didn't matter. He was sitting there at sixty yards, staring a hole in me. He was watching me, watching the doe chase, watching the young buck chase around the doe. Talk about <laughs> keeping your eye on the prize. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then then it's like, okay, now what do I do? I mean, there's I mean, he's out of here, guaranteed. You know, but do I stay? I mean, there's a chance he could get on something hot, and if he gets on something hot, she wants to be here. Uh, but yeah, the rest of the sit was no really fun. Um, but I that was my one crack. It's like I'm going to wait till November to get aggressive on him, and I went right in there after him. And then what I did is. I ended up sitting the whole day, never saw him again, um, and got the heck out, and all right, I'm I'm done going aggressive now until we get much later, because I, I feel that, I play all these games in my head, I think that I've got one mulligan on a buck like that, that I can probably get away with something like that happening once. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to be able to kill him out of that tree stand now after mm-hmm. that. But I'm saying that I don't believe that one encounter was enough to totally blow him out of that area. He has lived here for seven and a half, well, actually, he's a seven and a half year old buck, but he's actually lived in this area um, from the time he was one and a half on. And for the last two years, he's been the man, he's had the choice. And there's a reason he's choosing this, and it's because that bedding area is primo. So I don't think that one encounter is going to be enough to blow him out of there, but I ain't going to risk number two. So I went back to nipping more at the edges of what I considered as core area and ended up, ended up thankfully, trying to shoot him without taking off the safety on my gun um, during a firearm season. And I say thankfully because I jerked on that trigger so darn hard that I couldn't have even hit the sky if the safety had been off. (laughs) But it was enough for me to, okay, because I I don't do this type of stuff. I hunt mature bucks. I rarely set, this is the only buck I have ever, this is the one I'm killing or I'm not killing nothing, period, end of story. Um, And I've actually seen him once all season long and now it's the end of November and there I'm sitting there with a shotgun in my hand and he's sitting at sitting at 120 yards and as I said honestly if I had not forgot to turn off the safety I guarantee I would have missed him because I was I was a ball of nerves but then it's like okay just chill your butt the heck out he has no clue you just need to get your stuff together, and this buck is yours. <laughs> so, thankfully, he was quartered towards me by that point, so I had to sit there for about two minutes. So it was enough to get my act together and actually make the shot. Wow. So what did you, you know, going from usually hunting mature bucks to now that year being after the buck, did you learn anything unique that season from that buck about either you or about what big old special bucks like that do, uh, or how to kill a single deer like that? Was there any big takeaway from that season? 
the big takeaway is I enjoy hunting bucks a lot more than I enjoy hunting a single buck. <laughs> well, that is stressful. That is. True. Um, I mean, it was incredibly rewarding. Okay. And there have been, there. don't get me wrong, there have been other bucks over the course of the years that I've set out to kill. But it hasn't been, I am not shooting anything. And it's kind of cool as we're talking, I'm sitting there looking at his pedestal mount. <laughs> um, but there's never been another buck in this world that I said, no, it's it's him or nothing, period, end of story. And I, I figured it would be a one-time thing at the time. And yeah, I'm glad I did it. It was, it was a thrillingly frustrating, stressful experience. But no, I have a lot more fun just going out there and hunting mature bucks. Period. To be brutally honest with you, a lot more fun. Yeah, I certainly can relate to the stress part. I I end up hunting one single mature buck by default a lot of years because the only one, and uh, that ends up being. I don't know. It, it's prematurely graying my hair, I think. I think I'll say that. Exact same thing here. The, what what I should say is what I did is I had it in my mind that it didn't matter what the heck else stopped, stepped out. That this, what, I mean, and I'm, I'll be brutally honest with you. If a 200-incher stepped out, heck, if a 170-incher stepped out, you know, 15 inches smaller than this one. I'm not promising I would have stuck to my guns because being rigidly flexible has its benefits. <laughs> okay. But in my mind, it was a steer bust period in the story. You know, And I've been in the situations you're talking about a whole bunch where, yeah, you only have one mature buck in the area, but I'm telling you, if something even marginally close to it shows up, I'm shooting it. <laughs> yeah. And I'm saying thank you. <laughs> Whereas in this one, I passed up some ridiculous stuff. <laughs> or bucks that there's no way I'm passing up under normal circumstances. Yeah. yeah. Just to get, and I'm glad I did it, but it's it was a one-time thing for this guy because <laughs> everybody has their own different special things that float their boat, and that was, well, here, I've actually a horrific experience when, um, blue tongue came through one of the properties I was managing back in 2003. I mean, I've had blue tongue come through so many. I really honestly think on most of the properties I manage, not think I know that we lose five to 10% of the deer there each year to blue tongue. Um, but this was a particularly horrific year and we lost 70% of all the deer on the, in this area. I'll tell you what, you go through junk like that once and you either go nuts or you learn how to look at things differently. And I'll tell you what, that it was a painful lesson, but I learned right then that, you know, this stuff's supposed to be fun. And if it's, it's up to you to make it fun, so don't do things that stress you out. That's, it's hard to argue with right there. <laughs> I, well, I, and everybody does. I mean, geez, I know this. I, I mean, I could, I, I hate to say this, but I almost beat up an, a 70-some-year-old marshmallow that ended up shooting one of, the, one of the last good bucks we had remaining. And it was all because, and it had nothing to do with him. It had to do with going from 15 mature bucks 
that, I mean, I was at goal. This was going to be awesome to blue tongue and EHD, bringing them down to four. And then neighbors, I'm sitting there trying to, trying to limp all four of them on till next year now because we've just been decimated and the neighbors ended up shooting them all. And no fault for the neighbors. For crying out loud, that's 100% their right. As a matter of fact, when I went over, when they'd shot the last one, I grabbed a set of sheds from the buck from the year before, stopped off at the house and went ahead and copied, I don't know, 30 or 40 different trail camera pictures of the thing over the years. I had hundreds of them. I was planning on giving the guy them until he made the mistake of going to one of his buddies saying, I'd shot a absolute runt management four-and-a-half-year-old that day. Um, and he, before I got to congratulate him, I heard him mention to one of the, yeah, that one over there would have been a good one if he'd given it a few more years. And I lost my, I lost my snot. <laughs> I mean, I, I was face-to-face with the 70-some-year-old guy who went maybe 300 pounds and didn't look like he'd done a day's worth of physical work his entire life. I got my nose almost touching him, and I'm spitting all over him as, I'm, as I am just chewing his butt, secretly praying that he is silly enough to say anything, because if he does, I'm going to. I'm going to go nuts on him right here in the meat house. <laughs> I, I just can't envision this version of Steve Bartilla. This is new to me. <laughs> I, stress is an incredibly powerful thing. And thank God, thank God he didn't. <laughs> because it, was, it took me about, oh, 10 seconds after spitting on him to be utterly embarrassed of myself. And it's like, my God, you almost beat up this old man for, for nothing. And it had, I mean, yeah, he was a jerk for what he said. It was, but more ignorant than anything. It, but it had nothing to do with that. It had to. This stuff can drive you nuts if you let it. They are not our deer. They are free range deer that can go any darn way they, any darn place they want. And you know what? If your neighbors don't have the right to tell you what you can do on your side of the fence, you don't have the right to tell them. And that guy deserved nothing, uh, minus the comment. He deserved nothing but, hey, congratulations, here's a a set of sheds from him last year, and here's a whole bunch of photos. Man, that is a great deer. Congratulations. Pressure, pressure makes... Pressure has a way of sucking the fun out of this stuff. Yeah. You know what? That's why we do it. It's because this stuff is, I mean, there's more reasons to it than that, but really a big part of it is this stuff's supposed to be fun. So don't do stuff that's not fun. <sighs> yeah, this really is, kind of that simple. That's, this is my annual pep talk I have to give myself because I, I inevitably get stressed out over the same things because I get so into it and so focused on my goal that at some point in November, I have to have this uh, tree stand uh, intervention with come myself. Come to Jesus meeting. <laughs> What's that? I, I ha- you have a come to Jesus meeting yes. with yourself. Yep, I, I've, I've had, that's exactly what I had after that. It's like, look, you need to, you need to stop stressing out over what you can't control. You cannot control disease. You can't control whether or not the neighbors shoot a deer that you'd rather they didn't. That is 100% legal. 
you focus on what you can control because every bit of this stuff that's getting on your nerves is sucking energy and pleasure from this experience, and that energy could actually be used on things that can make a difference. Because sitting here being all upset and worked up about how all these great deer are dying, yeah, you can do that all day long, and if I give you a quarter, it's still not enough to even get a cup of coffee. (laughs) It accomplishes nothing. No, I have to... Go ahead. I know it's easier to say than do. I have been working on this for 10 years now, and I still don't have it completely down, but I am closer. Yeah. And and generally speaking, elderly men who go 300 pounds are safe once again in this world. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Pay attention here, because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options, like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater and use promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater at urgentcarekit.com slash meat eater. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. Now, I, I hate to keep harping on the topic of stress, um, but I'm going to throw a question out that's kind of related to this. With dealing with a stressful situation during the hunting season, which is a miss. Let's say you miss a great big buck you've been chasing all season. with. Let's t- say with your bow. Um how do you handle that scenario? Do you do you take a couple of days off? Do you go fix? Do you, I guess I'll just let you 
Walk me through. If it is a straight miss, I didn't wound it. He's not running around the woods, and I'm not worried about whether or not. I mean, I just messed up. I hit a branch, and that, or I rushed the shot, and I flat out missed him. I go ahead. I try to replay the scenario as impassionately, dispassionately, as I possibly can. How did I mess up? What can I learn from this? Learn from it? Literally sear that lesson in your brain and get the heck over it. Because obsessing over a missed shot isn't doing you any good. Now, if I wound a deer, it's it's not... I'm not going to get over it quite as fast, which, quite honestly, I don't think we should. Because, hey, it's our actions that went ahead and did that. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to exhaust every possibility of actually, at every legitimate, reasonable possibility of retrieving that deer that I can. And one thing I would say is I do think, and I don't think it's out of laziness. I think it's honestly out of ignorance. And ignorance, for some reason, has become a bad word in our in our society today, but guess what? Every single one of us are ignorant. Ignorance just means we don't know something as much as we should about something, and that's there's no shame in admitting that. Um, but I do think it's more ignorance than anything else, but a lot of people are way too fast to give up on trying to find that deer that they wounded. Um, mainly, as I said, just because I don't think they know what to do, but the systematic grid searches, checking every single ditch, check every fence crossing or every log that they would jump for blood spatter on the other side. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to finding wounded deer, if you've got a do not quit no matter what attitude, you're going to find a heck of a lot more than than most people are. Yeah, yeah that's... Uh... That's a tough, tough scenario to be in, but you're right. The The best thing to do is, is to try a little harder. Every time you start feeling down, just keep on keeping on. And be as thorough as you humanly possibly can. I would hate to guess how many trees people have walked by that are trying to find their deer, and their deer is laying right and has literally crawled into that tree top and died. Or down in the check every one of those ditches. Because so often it's pressed up against the bank to the point where you can barely even see it when you're looking. But yeah, thorough and don't quit. Yeah. Has a lot to do with success. Okay. So so we'll move on from the downer side of hunting, um, the part that we don't like to have to spend too much time thinking about and hopefully never have to, although inevitably those those things do happen but let's uh let's move to the best part of the hunting season for a lot of people which is the rut we like to think of it as a super bowl it's the thing we've looked forward to all year it's it's christmas in november um couple scenarios to throw at you in november one of them is is something that i ask a lot of folks about and it's something that i'm always constantly um finding myself wondering about is is when to make adjustments during the rut so let's say you are hunting in a primo location it's, I don't know, November 3, 4, 5, 6, somewhere in that ballpark. And you see th- the mature buck, let's say. We, we don't have a bunch of these things running around. We don't have seven or eight or nine mature bucks. We've got one, maybe two. And the buck oh, we're after. As, as, I, 
as a side note, I should clarify that property that I was talking about was stupid big. <laughs> We're talking thousands of acres. Yeah. But, but anyway. Yes. So this is a smaller property. We've got one, maybe two. And we see one of these big mature bucks step out, out of range. I don't know, 70 yards or something like that. And he's he's kind of cruising. He cruises by and disappears. There are some people who would say, you should relocate where you saw that buck. You should go and hunt there the very next day. Or even some people, if it's early in the day, they might pick up and move there in the middle of the day and hunt there in the evening. Other guys would say, no, I'm sticking to my guns. I'm in this spot for a reason. Eventually, that buck or another mature buck will come through this spot. How do you react to a sighting of a mature buck like that just out of range? Which which option would you take? I, I use the three-strike rule. If I see the same buck that I want to shoot or two different bucks that I want to shoot do the same thing twice, the third time I better be sitting there. One time I don't think, for me personally, I think reacting off of one sighting is just, too darn reactionary. You know, I mean, deer do things all the time once. I mean, every day they do something that, that they don't normally do once. You know, I can't guarantee that, but I think that's a pretty darn safe bet. Okay. Um, but when you see either the same buck do the same thing twice or two different mature bucks do the same thing twice, well, there's a problem. Now I start taking it seriously. Now I'm gonna. Now I'm gonna shift. Okay. Now, what about this slight adjustment? What if what you what if you saw that morning you're hunting and that mature buck is chasing a doe, and you see him chasing this doe into a bedding area? Maybe. Oftentimes, there's belief that sometimes they will see like a circling eventually happen, where that doe will kind of take that buck in a circle and they'll pass through there again. Would you make a move immediately or or very soon after in that kind of case, or is it still the same three strike rule? If I if I've got to stand over there uh, at that bedding area, I'm crawling down right there, walking over and crawling up. If I don't have a stand there, I'm not going to run. I'm not going to yank the stand shift it over there and reset it because to me that is way 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 too much risk you know the odds of being able to get away to be able to get away at uh, i'm guessing it's like eight nine o'clock in the morning where we just seen this whole thing play out now at eight nine o'clock in the morning i'm going to yank my stand up. now I, I don't use if i had a climber that might be a different story but i hunt out of out of uh hang-ons, not climbers, just because of a few bad experiences in my youth with Baker climbers, um, which were 100% my fault, but that still doesn't change the fact that, geez, I went down way too many trees with them way too fast to be to ever really be completely comfortable in them. It's all in my head. But um, <clears throat> uh, rather than, as I said, if I was a Climbing tree stand hunter, I I probably would shift right then and there. But if I don't have a tree stand there, I'm not going to go ahead and set up a tree stand 50 yards off to the east on the edge of that bedding area right now because, geez, that buck is chasing that door around there, and odds are really good that I'm going to get busted by something trying to pull it off. And, geez, I just went ahead and became my own worst enemy. So it's kind of, it's what it, all these types of decisions for me 
are balancing odds. Now, and what there's, and I wish I could say that this, this is the line that where it flips. I can't. It's just in my okay. What do I have to gain? What do I have to lose? Does this make sense? I go through that numerous times every set. I mean, when I'm watching that buck chase that doe, I'm going through that. Okay, do I try to go ahead and call her, call him off that doe? He's got what she what he wants already. That doe's not going to be happy with hearing the calling going on here. You know, let's just let this play out. Let's let it play out and see, because I think the odds of it going south are too high to take this risk. Oh, they're headed straight away now. Okay, I'm pretty darn sure she's not planning on coming back. All right, now you throw the book at him, because what do I got to lose? Yeah. Those are the type. That's the type of stuff that's always going through my head. Yeah. Um. What a, you, you kind of answered this for that scenario, but I'm just curious if we put it in, in more gener, generalities here. Lots of times there are folks that during the rut will hunt one kind of location in the morning and then they want to hunt a different kind of location for the second half of the day or for the evening hours. Maybe they want to be closer to a doe feeding area or something for the during that rut time period. If you were going to make a stand change during the rut, and you're hunting, let's say you're hunting pretty much the whole day, but you want to shift locations at some point, all of the things being equal, what time would you think is the safest time typically to make that move? Because I always worry about this because during the rut, you do have this increased midday movement of mature bucks cruising. So I'm always trying to wonder like, what is the possible lowest point of, of risk during the day to make that shift? I... I'll be honest with you, I look at it more, not so much from the risk standpoint, but from the reward standpoint. Um, I, If I've been, okay, so here's a very realistic scenario. It's November 7th, I'm going to be hunting the down, I'm going to get in early, I'm going to hunt the downwind side of a doe bedding area back in the timber, okay? Well, once you get to that last hour or so, last hour and a half before dark, I don't know bedding area is really worth a darn. Because yeah. <laughs> the does are gone. <laughs> Mr. Big's no idiot. He realizes that, oh, yeah, about two hours before dark, the does get up and they start meandering around, doing a little browsing in the woods as they slowly make their way to, uh, to whatever food source. I mean, if you're up in the big woods of the big woods or wherever, it might be a clear cut. Or if you're down in Iowa, it's probably an egg field. No, but either way, he realizes that eh, they generally get up about this time. They generally start meandering their way through the, to the food plot. They generally arrive at the food plot at such and such a time. No different than you understand what the daily events are that go on in your home. So does Mr. Big. This is his dang house. Okay. So at that point, I don't want to be sitting on that doe bedding area anymore. But I also understand that I got to beat. I got to get out of here before everything really starts going too nuts in the woods. Otherwise, I'm going to be running the gauntlet getting to my other stand. Now, if I am running the gauntlet getting to my other stand, I'm not going to just 
go ahead and do a normal walk. I'm going to essentially still hunt my way over to the other stand. Not believing that I'm going to shoot something, but just believing that, oh, there's a deer up in a boat, and, hmm, I really want to see them before they see me. And every now and then, something really weird happens. And yeah, One of the bucks I'm looking at as we speak, I sat, I shot at 20 yards on the ground. I walked up to him. And when I got 30 yards away, he crouched down really hard in his bed, and I couldn't shoot him there. And took 10 more steps. He stood up for me, and I shot him. Wow. <laughs> That's the only buck I can ever say I did something like that with. But you know what? I was glad I had a bow, and I was glad I had my arrow in the bow. I'm glad I came to full draw, even when I didn't think there was any way this was really going to happen. So I do try to keep, you try to keep my options open just because every now and then a blue moon happens. But generally speaking, I do a stalk to the stand just just because I don't want to explode stuff if I don't have to. Um, But I'd want to be... I'd probably make that switch about a good, honest, at least three hours before dark. The one thing I have noticed over the years, in my experience, and this has a lot to do with outfitters, outfitters, generally speaking, try to hunt their clients as late in the morning as they possibly can, and then the clients get back, get something to eat, blah, 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 maybe take a little nap, and then end up getting out with, oh, two hours left in the afternoon. I, I would much, much, much rather, be, if I'm sitting on a, this is going to sound stupid, but if I'm sitting especially on an Edwards food plot, but even on egg fields where I can see back into the woods, I end up seeing a lot more mature buck activity four to two hours before dark than I do those last two hours. And I do think I do think that a lot of people, especially with more with outfitters than anything, because of the scenario I described, but end up getting out the, to their afternoon stands during the rut way too darn late. Now, so it's probably going to be about four hours before dark. I'll shift from the bedding area on down to the food plot or hunting food in some way, shape, or form, because really what I'm doing is I'm hunting does. Mr. Big is hunting does, so hmm. Guess what I want to hunt? Because if I hunt the same thing he is, yeah, I'm going to intercept his patterns. And a lot of people think that mature bucks don't have patterns during the rut, but I'm telling you, I've a lot of them, I think, cling to patterns more tightly during the rut than any other time of year. I remember talking with you about this a few years ago um, and how you had been seeing how they'll have these core areas typically associated with doe family groups that they'll kind of cycle through, typically checking these spots where they've come to find that, yes, there are going to be does here. Um, But that was probably five years ago. Has your thought process or your beliefs around patterning deer with a rut, has that evolved at all over the last five years? Are you, has that been adjusted? If anything, just gotten to be more and more. I mean, at first, when I first thought I figured this out, oh, I... I was more than a little bit leery because everyone, and I do mean everybody else, is out there, oh, you can't, you can't pattern bucks during the rut. I mean, I've heard that my whole dang life. But then just so much of this to me is just, does it pass the common sense test? 
you know, just common flip and sense. Whitetails are not that complicated of animals. And frankly, when people try to make them complicated, I honestly believe it's either they don't have a clue what the heck they're talking about or they're trying to impress somebody. Um, <clears throat> they're, they're just they're trying to survive. Nothing more, nothing less. And they like it when they're comfortable and happy at the same time. Um, <clears throat> I'll be brutally honest with you. I forgot what the heck we're talking about. <laughs> I had asked if your if your thoughts on patterning oh, deer yeah. in a rut have changed at all. Um, Mr. Big knows his house, just like we do. Um, just like our dogs, our pets do. You know, he knows where these where these family groups are most likely going to be during any period of a 24-hour period. He's trying to breed these does. Do you think he's checking a doe when he is not actively breeding a doe? Do you think he's checking that doe bedding area during the daylight when they're there? More days than not, of course he is, because he's trying to find hot does. If that's not a pattern, I don't know what the heck is. Now, is it possible that, oh, geez, a different mature buck ended up wandering in. He got on a estrus doe who took him over his home range line and took him to an area he's never been before. He got done with her, started headed back home. Oh, I picked up the scent of another one. Now, next thing you know, he's three miles away from home, and he's walking through this bedding area. And, man, he sees the buck you're hunting, and he drives him the heck off. Does stuff like that ever happen? Of course it does. And early season, when the farmer goes out and cuts the wood right around his field all day, does that impact the feeding that night? Yeah, sure it can, especially if he decides to do it until dark. Now, there's all, and when a coyote goes into goes into Mr. Big's bedding area on October 3rd and boots him out, and he goes, you know, ends up shifting to a different bedding spot he's comfortable with a mile away. Did that change his patterns? Of course it did. All sorts of things can alter a buck's patterns. But if stopping and checking that food source, because he knows those are going to be there after dark, in these bedding areas during the day because he knows those are going to be there during the day. If that's not a pattern, what the heck is? And I'll tell you, I get, I can, I have, this is where trail cameras, and especially, geez, for those who can afford them, Merconics trail cameras are God's gift to hunting. In that when you have picture after picture after picture after picture of the same mature bucks checking the same food sources and the same bedding areas during the rut. Really hard not to call that a pattern, isn't it? Hard to argue with that. And that's what the, the beautiful thing, that the, the thing that has, that I flat out love about running the ridiculous number of trail cameras that I do is there are so many things people are saying out there that this is the way it is. I'll tell you what, pictures don't lie. And I've got picture after picture after picture of mature bucks doing all sorts of things we're told over and over and over they just plain don't do. 
do you run your cameras? Do your let me rephrase this. Which do you find more valuable? Having your trail cameras on photo mode and you don't need to touch them or go bother them for weeks and weeks and weeks on end because the battery SD card lasts a long time or having your cameras on video mode where you can maybe get more information but fills up the SD card much more quickly, batteries run down much more quickly, you have to go in there more often. Uh, both but for different reasons. When it comes to... Uh... <laughs> When it comes to just plain IDing and inventorying the standing stock of whitetails on that ground at any given time, I really like pictures. Because I'll go ahead and get four or five, I'll set it to rapid shot burst, and I'll get four or five, six, seven, eight pictures of this one buck, and I can zoom in, I can study, I can do all this stuff. Um, that I can't do with video. Okay. When it comes to understanding whitetail behavior, oh man, does it ever suck battery life and card space. Going ahead and setting, <laughs> setting your camera to HD mode for two minutes, continuous shooting. Oh, it can get to be painful going through some of those sometimes. When you got fifty, when you got fifty chips, you're going through of the. But man, if you want to learn, I, I, I'll tell to this day, by far the best teacher I have ever had when it comes to hunting are whitetails, because they they don't know how to lie, they don't know how to deceive you. All they do is they go out and they live their life. And you sit there and you watch them, and they will teach you everything you need to know. I like, I, I study deer, and the videos are invaluable for that. So that's, how, that's how I've been able to put a whole bunch of stuff together. Like, okay, there's a picture of that buck. That didn't tell me much. All I know right now is that, wait a minute, he is quite a ways out of his normal area. But I've got it on video mode instead. So, oh, there goes just, I just caught the flash of a doe flying through. And, oh, here's that buck right behind her. Ah, so I bet you he went ahead and came across a doe whose home range overlapped his. He got on her, and that's why he's actually over here. It's not because he's coming over here looking for a girl. He's actually had a girl lead her him here. And then um, something like uh, this geez, this nasty nasty eight point uh, <clears throat> on one of the properties I managed years ago. Just an absolute brute of a bully of a buck. Um, seven and a half years old, built like a brick outhouse. And he was not shy about throwing his weight around. And I go ahead and shoot him one night. And by midnight, that same night, a three-and-a-half-year-old who had spent a ridiculous amount of time over here. Now, I have video footage of him getting his butt handed to him two weeks before by this eight-point. And now, less than six hours after he shot, that buck is back. Is that a coincidence? And then that happens a third time and a fourth day. Video mode is my greatest teacher. 
I need to uh, I need to better utilize that. I've always been hesitant to do it because of the batter and SD card implications, but I've been continuously getting more and more um, becoming more aware of what I'm missing out on. So you probably just put the nail in the coffin there for me, Steve. <laughs> I got to do oh, it. Good. good, because the big thing that so many people do is they look at tr- they look at their trail camera data. Not there many people actually study it. Where was that buck coming from? Where is he going? What's he doing? Why is he doing it? And all that type of stuff. And really think when it comes to, I can't hammer this enough, when it comes to utilizing trail cameras, if you want intel on high-impact locations, first, ask yourself, how can I get that same, how can I get close to that same level of impact, intel from a lower-impact location? Um, and then... When I, when I actually do go back in there and set up cameras, is the second gun season closes. The second the last gun season closes, that's when I shift my cameras to high-impact high locations that I really want to figure out. Or when my tag is full, whichever occurs first. And can you explain why that is? Um, just because I don't want... At, okay, so after deer season, or after gun season's over, I'm no longer anywhere near as worried about the managing aspect of deer. Okay, there's not that many of us out there anymore in late season. Okay, and frankly, it's gun season where you lose the majority of the deer that you're trying to limp along another year. So at, as soon as guns, the last gun season for the year. Ends. I'm not talking about if they have a special doe season at the end of the season. That, that don't count. But um, <clears throat> in most states, it goes firearms and muzzleloader hunting. Once muzzleloader hunting is over, that is when I'll seriously start to consider putting cameras into high-impact areas that I want to understand what's going on back there. If I still have a tag or... or this is a client's ground and they have tags, they're still hunting, I'll wait till season's done. Or they fill their tag to go ahead and move in. But that is when I actually get my intel. Keep in mind, as you know, and I'm sure more than a few people are thinking as I say this, yes, deer patterns do change over time. But generally speaking, they're going to use the topography the exact same way, no matter what time of year it is. Now, they generally use the same travel corridors um, <clears throat> when they're trying to get from point A to point B in summer versus spring versus fall, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah. Speaking of that, I want – we, we got to wrap this up. I've kept you here for about 19 hours. Uh, your day has been completely awash now because we've been talking bucks for so long. <laughs> but uh, I do want to end with one last sort of a rapid fire set of questions that relates to what you just suggested there a little bit as far as how deer behavior or movements will shift throughout the year. I want to, I'm going to present a date. I'm going to give you a date. And then I would just like to hear from you. Like first thing that comes to mind, the top hypothetical stand location for that date. I realize there's a lot of other outside variables, but just think of a hypothetical scenario that would be perfect for that date and, and kind of briefly explain the stand site for that date. And then I'm going to give you another date, and I'm going, to, I'm going to list off a handful of dates throughout the season, and I'm just curious to see how your hypothetical stand setups would shift. 
Sounds good. And then we'll wrap it up right after that. So first date, October 1st, where are you hunting? Food. Food or the trails to or from. Um, at this point, Mr. Big's trying to fatten up for the hell that's about to come. Best food? What would your top food source um, be at that point? Early season, alfalfa is really good. Clover can be really good. Um, surprisingly to most people, if uh, if you're using the right strains, brassicas can be a really, really powerful early season food source. Um, if you happen to have that one Oak Ridge that's dropping, that's a really good spot. If you're hunting the big woods, those meadows and those uh, those clear-cut regrowths are both really, really hard to beat that time of year. Perfect. October 12th. It depends on the temperature. Um, if it's the temp drop like you were describing earlier, I'm hunting the rut. I'm hunting does. Um, doe bedding areas in the morning and the food source they're dominating in the afternoon. And if that buck has been consistently coming in an hour after dark, you give me that 20-degree temp drop, I'm expecting to shoot him a full half hour before dark right on that same food source, and don't bet against me because that happens a surprisingly high percentage of time. Um, in that exact scenario, when he's coming in consistently a half hour to two hours after dark, and now all of a sudden you get that 20-plus degree temp drop, I'm planning on him being there a half hour before dark that day. Um, <clears throat> if it's not a scenario like that, I'm probably hunting a low-impact spot just to get the fix of sitting in a tree stand but not wanting to mess things up okay unless i have intel on a specific buck doing something if i do at any point i'm i'm jumping october 25th uh scrapes back in the woods preferably in the morning november 4th uh doe groups doe groups are the funnel support uh, or the funnels, um, separating them, or the thickest, nastiest cover I can possibly find, or the does feeding uh, primary food source in the afternoons. November 19th. Same thing. December 7th? December 7th in the mornings, I actually... I late season morning huntings to me stink in every way except for setting up on doe groups and trying to catch Mr. Big going after going after a doe fawn. Um, so in the morning, I might be hunting a, uh, a doe group. In the afternoon, I'm sitting food. Now, when I'm saying I'm sitting food, that doesn't always mean I'm sitting on food. But it's food-related in one way, shape, or form. I'm either sitting on the food source or I'm setting a travel corridor leading to that food source. And quite honestly, the decision between the two is going to be made on based on how confident I am that Mr. Big is going to show up before dark. The less confident I am that he's going to show up before dark, the closer to his bedding area I'm trying to be. Do things change at all on January 7th, one month later? Um. No, it's the exact same approach for me. The only thing is, is the later you get, the more and more food becomes king. And I'll, if there is a, if there's a secret to trophy buck hunting, to mature buck hunting, 
it's that late season is so much better than most people realize. Assuming you've got an area that's food, low pressure and yeah, food. I, of course, uh, yes, and thank you because you are. If you're talking, if you're talking late season on public land in in northern Wisconsin, good dang luck, buddy, <laughs> because you see a squirrel, it's been a good set. Okay. Um, no, I, I'm I'm talking about I'm talking about hunting mature bucks in the mature buck meccas. That is late season is. I actually learned a couple things I learned doing trophy buck profiles for North American whitetail years and years and years ago. A ridiculous amount of private landowners are killing their biggest bucks in December and January. The other thing I learned is when it comes to the surprising thing is the approximately half of the big buck stories I did were from people hunting public ground or what may as well be public ground because their uncle Ted lets everybody and anybody in to hunt. And the thing that I found so fascinating about those is the overwhelming majority of bucks that are killed in those scenarios are killed by kids and first time hunters because they don't know any damn better. Now they end up going places that you and I aren't going Mark Uh because we're too darn (laughs) but how does a buck actually get to be five and a half, six and a half years old in a scenario like that. Well, they get to be that old by not doing what they're supposed to do, and we're, we actually get to be too darn smart to be able to shoot them, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I think we we often chase our tails right into uh, tag sandwiches, oftentimes. Oh, you darn right. <laughs> that is the truth. Well, uh, Steve, as always, this was, uh, this was a blast. I'm uh, sufficiently more excited than I thought I even could be and ready to get going. I was just out scouting some new public land last night, got eyes on a couple shooters. So, uh, I've I've got all sorts of excitement roiling within me right now. Um, for people that want to learn more from me, who enjoyed this, who want to get more from you, I know you've got a lot of things out there. Where can they go to, to see what you're up to right now, to get your books or your videos or your articles or anything like that? I'll be brutally honest with you. And this is going to sound so cheesy, but hopefully you know me well enough to know that I actually am the cheese ball that is me. Um, I'm, if you don't mind for a second, I'm some kid raised by a divorced mother from northern Wisconsin whose homeroom teacher bet his wrestling coach 20 bucks wouldn't even graduate high school. I'm not supposed to be here. I had no idea how tough this was supposed to be to break into this field or any of this stuff. And I sure didn't do it because I am so unbelievably smart. I did it because so many of the people that are listening to this stuff went ahead and threw me on their shoulders and carried me to the dance. I am extremely lucky in that I've been able to live my damn dream. Okay, beyond the wildest dreams I've had. I'm as we speak, I'm managing almost ten thousand acres of dirt for deer. I'm not supposed to do that. Okay? The only reason I'm doing this is because so many of the people that are listening empowered me to do this. So I'm finally at a point in my career that I don't need to make a lot of money anymore. 
And I don't need to, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm as solid middle class as anybody and will never be more than that. But I'm in a position where I'm going to remain solidly middle class. I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do these days is give away as much stuff of this that I can for free as I possibly can. Um, Every weekday on Facebook, Steve Bartella Outdoors, I'm doing a free post um that is i mean geez i went ahead last year i wrote an entire book one chapter a day on facebook and don't get me wrong i'm not a huge fan of facebook in any way shape or form the guy gets on my nerves to the max but it is a tremendous platform to share stuff for free and that's really what i'm doing now i'm trying to I'm on a essentially a thank you tour. I'm trying to say thanks to everybody who I simply put, Mark, I can't believe that I've lived lived this life. And it hasn't been me. It's been the people that are listening and I'm trying to say thanks and I'm in a position where I can, so I'm just giving out I am doing a whole bunch of work for deer and deer hunting. Um they went ahead and converted the grow em big tea, uh, grow em big online show I've done for six years now into a television show. Um, this year I'm actually going to. Uh, this year I'm actually going to. It's going to be 100% fresh. We're going to break down properties on how to uh, how we actually set how I set them up. Um, uh, but deer and deer hunting's Facebook page has a ridiculous amount of my stuff on there for free. And then I write exclusively for their magazine these days. But mostly what I'd really encourage people to do is between YouTube and Facebook, you can get so much of my stuff for free, it's not even funny. And I'm not saving anything for books or anything like that. I'm doing my best to say thanks to all those that brought me to the dance and made it so that this stupid kid from northern Wisconsin got to has literally lived his Beyond his, his dream. I mean, I get paid to play in the damn woods, Mark. <laughs> that, is, that is a pretty darn good dream to have right there and to, to live. I, uh, I'm right there with you, Steve. Well, and that's not lost on me. That it, it was not me who brought me to the dance. Well, I can tell you for, for myself and all the other listeners, we certainly appreciate what you're putting out there and what you're sharing with us because, because it's helping. So, so thank you for that. My pleasure. The one thing I would say is take from me and everyone else out there anything you see of value and for the love of God, throw away the rest. If you don't think it applies to you, don't use it. I can promise. I guarantee right now as we speak something I believe five years from now, I'm going to look back and say, how could have I ever been so simple? I just don't know what it is yet. We all are learning. None of us have all the answers. And even when we, even if somebody does have all the answers, all they have are all the answers from their scenario. Every single scenario is different. Trust yourselves. You guys and girls, you're the experts on your land, not us. And certainly, certainly not a bunch of overpaid quote-unquote experts that never, ever, ever hunt deer remotely like you do. 
That's uh, that's some perfect wisdom to end this one, I think, Steve, because you're absolutely right. You got to take the good, leave the bad or irrelevant for your scenario, test it, see what works for you, iterate, learn, and keep on keeping on. And uh, if you do that long enough, someday we all might be half the deer hunter that Steve Bartilla is, right? <laughs> oh. No, you'll be 10 times. If you do that... Sometimes, dear Hunter, I am. All right, Steve. Well, this is great. I appreciate it. And uh, let's chat again soon. Sounds great, my man. Sounds great. And good luck to everybody out there this year. If nothing else, please remember the most important things in all this is that you don't come home in a body bag and that you actually have fun. Very true. All right, and that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this one. I, uh, I just... I just really enjoy chatting with Steve. He's genuine. He is a real person and he throws a lot of great information out there for all of us to, to take in and enjoy. And uh, he's very generous with that. So make sure you check out what he's got going on. He didn't plug them, but I will plug his books for him. He's got some great books. Big Buck Secrets is one I like in particular. I'm actually rereading that right now. Um, check them all out. And until next time, Thank you and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.